Section four of Null ABC. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Karina Schultz. Null ABC by H. Beam Piper and John J. McGuire. You say Frank Cardin's illiterate? she asked. Then what's he doing managing the senator's campaign? Fifth columning? He shook his head. You think the fraternities are a solid, monolithic organization. Everybody agreed on aims and means, and working together in harmony? <laughs> That's how it's supposed to look, from the outside. On the inside, though, there's a bitter struggle going on between two factions, over policy and for control. One faction wants to maintain the status quo, a handful of literates doing the reading and writing for an illiterate public and holding a monopoly on literacy. They're headed by two men, Wilton Joyner and Harvey Graves. Bain was one of that faction. He paused, thinking quickly. If Lansdale had gotten the upper hand, there was likely to be a revision of the Joyner-Graves attitude toward Pelton. In that case, the less he said to incriminate Russell Latterman, the better. Let Bain be the villain for a while, he decided. Bain, he continued, is one of a small minority of fanatics who make a religion of literacy. I believe he disposed of your father's medicine and then deliberately goaded him into a rage to bring on a heart attack. That doesn't represent Joyner Graves' policy. It was just something he did on his own. He's probably been disciplined for it by now. But the Joyner Graves faction are working for your father's defeat and the re-election of Grant Hamilton. The other faction is headed by a man you've probably never heard of, William R. Lansdale. I'm of his faction, and so is Frank Cardin. We want to see your father elected, because the socialization of literacy would eventually put the literates in complete control of the government. We also want to see literacy become widespread, eventually universal, just as it was before World War Four, But wouldn't that mean the end of the fraternities? Claire asked. That's what Joyner and Graves say. We don't believe so. And suppose it did. Lansdale says, if we're so incompetent that we have to keep the rest of the world in ignorance to earn a living, the world's better off without us. He says that every oligarchy carries in it the seeds of its own destruction. That if we can't evolve with the rest of the world... We're doomed in any case. That's why we want to elect your father. If he can get his socialized literacy program adopted, we'll be in a position to load the public with so many controls and restrictions and formalities that even the most bigoted illiterate will want to learn to read. Lansdale says a private monopoly like ours is bad, but a government monopoly is intolerable, and the only way the public can get rid of it would be by becoming literates themselves. She glanced toward the door of Pelton's private restroom. "'Poor Senator,' she said softly. "'He hates literacy so, and his own children are literates, and his program against literacy is being twisted against itself.' "'But you agree that we're right and he's wrong?' Prestonby asked. "'You must, or you'd never have come to me to learn to read.' "'He's such a good father. I'd hate to see him hurt,' she said." But, Ralph, you're my man. Anything you're for, I'm for, and anything you're against, I'm against. He caught her hand across the table, forgetful of the others in the office. 
Claire, now that everybody knows, he began. Top emergency, top emergency, a voice brayed out of the alarm box on the wall. Serious disorder in Department 32. Serious disorder in Department 32. The voice broke off as suddenly as it had begun, but the box was not silent. From it came a medley of shouts, curses, feminine screams, and splintering crashes. Prestonby and Claire were on their feet. "'You have wall screens?' he asked. "'How do they work? Like the ones at school?' Claire twisted a knob until the number 32 appeared on a dial and pressed a button. On the screen, the chinaware department on the third floor came to life, in full sound and color. The pickup must have been across an aisle from the box from whence the alarm had come. They could see one of Pelton's illiterate clerks lying unconscious under it, and the handphone dangling at the end of its cord. The aisles were full of jostling, screaming women, trampling one another and fighting frantically to get out, and among them groups of three or four men were gathered back to back. One such group had caught a store policeman. Three were holding him while a fourth smashed vases over his head, grabbing them from a nearby counter. A pink dinner plate came skimming up from the crowd, narrowly missing the wired TV pickup. A moment later, a blue and white sugar bowl, thrown with better aim, came curving at them in the screen. It scored a hit and brought darkness, though the bedlam of sound continued. Cardin looked at his watch as he entered the council chamber at Literates Hall, smoothing his smock hastily under his Sam Brown. He'd made it with very little time to spare, before the doors would be sealed and the meeting would begin. He'd been all over town, tracking down that report of Sforza's, He'd even made a quick visit to Chinatown, on the off chance that China had been used in an attempt at the double concealment of the obvious, but, as he'd expected, he'd found nothing. The people there hardly knew there was to be an election. Accustomed for millennia to ideographs read only by experts, they viewed the current uproar about literacy with unconcern. At the door he deposited his pocket recorder. No sound recording device was permitted, except the big audiovisual camera in front, which made the single permanent record. Going around the room counterclockwise to the seats of his faction, he encountered two other Lansdale men, Gerald K. Toppington of the technological section, thin-faced, sandy-haired, balding, and Franklin R. Chernoff, commander of the local Literates Guards Brigade, with his ragged gray mustache, his horribly scarred face, and his outsized tablet holster, almost as big as a mail-order catalogue. "'What's Joyner Graves trying to do to us, Frank?' Chernoff rumbled gutturally. "'It's what we're going to do to them,' Cardin replied. "'Didn't the chief tell you?' Chernoff shook his head. "'No time. I only got here fifteen minutes ago, chasing all over town about that tip from Sforza. Nothing, of course. Nothing from Sforza, either. The thing must have been planned weeks ago, whatever it is.' and everybody briefed personally, and nothing on disc or tape about it. But what's going to happen here? Lansdale gonna pull a rabbit out of his hat? Cardin explained. Chernoff whistled. Man, that's no rabbit. That's a full-grown Bengal tiger. I hope it doesn't eat us by mistake. Cardin looked around, saw Lansdale in animated argument with a group of his associates. Some of the others seemed to be sharing Chernoff's fears. I have every confidence in the chief, Toppington said. If his tigers make a meal off anybody, it'll be... He nodded in the direction of the other side of the chamber, where Wilton Joyner, short, bald, pompous, and Harvey Graves 
tall and cadaverous, stood in a Rosencrantz Guildenstern attitude, surrounded by half a dozen of their top associates. The council president, Moorhead, came out a little door onto the rostrum and took his seat, pressing a button. The call bell began clanging slowly. Lansdale, glancing around, saw Cardin and nodded. On both sides of the chamber the literates began taking seats, and finally the call bell stopped, and literate President Moorhead rapped with his gavel. The opening formalities were hustled through. The routine held over business was rubber-stamped with hasty votes of approval, even including the decisions of the extemporary meeting of that morning on the affair at Pelton's. Finally, the presiding officer rapped again and announced that the meeting was now open for new business. At once, Harvey Graves was on his feet. "'Literate President,' he began, as soon as the chair had recognized him, "'this is scarcely new business, since it concerns a problem, a most serious problem, which I and some of my colleagues have brought to the attention of this council many times in the past, the problem of black literacy.' He spat out the two words as though they were a mouthful of poison. Literate president and fellow literates, if anything could destroy our fraternities, to which we have given our lives devotion, it would be the widespread tendency to bypass the fraternities, the practice of literacy by non-fraternities people. We've heard all that before, Wilton, somebody from the Lansdale side called out. What do you want to talk about that you haven't gotten on every record of every meeting for the last thirty years? "'Why, this Pelton business,' Graves snapped back at him. "'You know what I mean. Your own associates are responsible for it.' He turned back to face the chair, and, with a surprising minimum of invective, described the scene in which Claire Pelton had demonstrated her literacy. "'And that's not all, brother literates,' he continued. "'Since then I've been receiving reports from the Pelton store.' Claire Pelton has been openly doing the work of a literate, going over the store's written records, checking inventories, checking the credit guide, handling the price lists. "'What's that got to do with black literacy?' Gerald Toppington demanded. "'Black literacy is a term which labels the professional practice of literacy for hire by a non-fraternity literate, or literate service furnished for criminal or politically subversive purposes, or the betrayal of a client by a fraternity literate. There's nothing of the sort involved here. This girl, who does appear to be literate, is simply looking after the interests of her family's business.' "'She was taught by a literate.' a fraternity's member under to say the very least irregular circumstances and without payment of any fee any fee that is that the fraternities can collect any percentage on and the literate who taught her also taught her younger brother ray pelton and this literate who is known to be her lover suppose he is her lover so what one of lansdale's partisans demanded you say yourself that she's illiterate that ought to remove any objection. Why, if she were to come forward and admit and demonstrate her literacy, there'd be no possible objection from the fraternity's viewpoint to her marrying young Prestonby. And as for Prestonby's action in teaching literacy to her and her brother, Cardin spoke up, I think he deserves the thanks and commendation of the fraternities. He's put a period to four generations of bigoted illiterates. Wilton Joyner was on his feet. "'Will literate Graves yield for a motion?' he asked. "'Thank you, Harvey. "'Literate President and Brother Literates, 
I yield to no man in my abhorrence of black literacy, or in my detestation for the political principles of which Chester Pelton has made himself the spokesman, but I deny that we should allow the acts and opinions of the illiterate parent to sway us in our consideration of the literate children. It has come to my notice, as it has to literate graves, that this young woman, Claire Pelton, is literate to a degree that would be a credit to any literate first class, and her brother can match his literacy creditably against that of any novice in our fraternities. To show that we respect literate ability wherever we find it, to show that we are not the monopolistic closed corporation our enemies accuse us of being, to show that we are not animated by a vindictive hatred of anything bearing the name of Pelton, I move and ask that my motion be presented for seconding that claire pelton and her brother raymond pelton be duly elected respectively to the positions of literate third class and literate novice as members of the associated fraternities of literates from the joiner grave side there were dutiful cries of yes yes admit the young pelton and also gasps of horrified surprise from the rank and filers who hadn't been briefed on what was coming up Lansdale was on his feet in an instant. "'Literate President,' he cried, "'in view of the delicate political situation, and in view of Chester Pelton's violent denunciation of our fraternities—' "'Literate Lansdale,' the President objected, "'the motion is not to be debated until it has been properly seconded.' "'What does the Literate President think I'm doing?' Lansdale retorted. "'I second the motion.' Joyner looked at Lansdale in angry surprise, which gradually became fearful suspicion. His stooge, who had already risen with a prepared speech of seconding, simply gaped. Furthermore, Lansdale continued, I move an amendment to literate Joyner's motion. I move that the ceremony of the administration of the literate's oath and the investiture in the smock and insignia be carried out as soon as possible and that an audio-visual recording be made and telecast this evening before twenty-one hundred brigade commander chernoff prodded by cardin jumped to his feet excellent he cried i second the motion to amend the motion of literate joiner if there were such a thing as a bomb which would explode stunned silence lansdale and chernoff had dropped such a bomb cardin could guess how joiner and graves felt they were now beginning to be afraid of their own proposition. As for the Lansdale literates, he knew how many of them felt. He'd felt the same way himself when Lansdale had proposed the idea. He got to his feet. Literate President, Brother Literates, he raised his voice, I call for an immediate vote on this amended motion, which I personally endorse most heartily, and which I hope to see carried unanimously. Now, wait a minute. Joyner objected. This motion ought to be debated. What do you want to debate about it? Chernoff demanded. You presented it, didn't you? Well, I wanted to give the council an opportunity to discuss it, as typical of our problems in dealing with black, I mean non-fraternities, literacy. You mean you didn't know it was loaded, Cardin told him. Well, that's your hard luck. We're going to squeeze the trigger. I withdraw the motion! Joyner shouted. Literate President, Lansdale said gently, his thin face lighting with an almost saintly smile. Literate Joyner simply cannot withdraw his motion now. 
it has been properly seconded and placed before the house and so has my own humble contribution to it i demand that the motion be acted upon vote 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 the lansdale literates began yelling i call on all my adherents to vote against this motion joiner shouted now look here wilton harvey graves shouted reddening with anger you're just making a fool out of me this was your idea in the first place do you want to smash everything we've ever done in the fraternities harvey we can't go on with it joiner replied he crossed quickly to graves seat and whispered something for the record lansdale said sweetly our colleague literate joiner has just whispered to literate graves that since i have seconded his motion he's now afraid of it i think literate graves is trying to assure him that my support is merely a bluff for the information of this body i want to state categorically that it is not and that i will be deeply disappointed if this motion does not pass an elderly literate on the joiner graves side an undersized man with a bald head and a narrow mouth was on his feet he looked like an aged rat brought to bay by a terrier i was against this fool idea from the start he yelled we've got to keep the illiterates down how are we ever going to do that if we go making literates out of them but you two thought you were being smart shut up and sit down you old jackass one of the joiner's people shouted at him shut up yourself ginter a hatchet-faced woman literate from the finance section squawked. Literate President Moorhead, an amiable and ineffective maiden aunt in trousers, pounded frantically with his gavel. Order! he fairly screamed. This is disgraceful! You can say that again, Brigade Commander Chernoff boomed. What do you people over on the right think this is? An illiterate's organizational political action meeting? Vote! Vote! Cardin bellowed. Literate President Morad banged his gavel and, in a last effort, started the call bell clanging. The motion has been presented and seconded. The amendment has been presented and seconded. It will now be put to a vote. Roll call, Cardin demanded. Four or five other voices from both sides of the chamber supported him. The vote will be by roll call, Literate President Morehead agreed addison walter g i he was a subordinate of harvey graves agostino pedro v i he was a lansdale man so it went on graves voted for the motion joiner voted against it all the lansdale faction now convinced that their leader had the opposition on the run voted loudly for it the vote has been one hundred and eighty-three for seventy-two against literate president morehead finally announced the motion is herewith declared carried literate lansdale i appoint you to organize a committee to implement the said motion at once preston b flung open the door of the rest room where sergeant cocazello and his subordinate were guarding the unconscious pelton sergeant who's in charge of store police now cocazello looked blank for an instant i guess i am he said lieutenant dunbar is off on his vacation in mexico and captain freiser's in the hospital he was taken sick suddenly last evening probably poisoned prestonby thought making a mental note to find out which hospital and get in touch with one of the literate medics there 
well come out here sergeant and have a look around the store on the tv we have troubles cacozzello could hear the noise that was still coming out of the darkened screen as he stepped forward claire got another pickup some distance from the one that had been knocked out a mob of women customers were surging away from the chinaware department into glassware they were running into the shopping crowd there with considerable disturbance a couple of store police were trying to get through the packed mass of humanity and making slow going of it cocozello swore and started calling on his reserves on one of the handphones wait a minute sergeant prestonby stopped him don't commit any of your reserves down there we're going to need them to hold the executive country up here this is only the start of a general riot who are you and what do you know about it cocozello challenged listen to him guido claire said he knows what he's doing claire you have some way of keeping a running count of the number of customers in and out of the store haven't you prestonby asked why yes here she pointed to an indicator on chester pelton's desk where constantly changing numbers danced and don't you have a continuous check on sales too how do they jibe they don't look sales are away below any expectation from the number of customers even allowing for shopping habits of a bargain day crowd but what's that got to do prestonby was back at the tv shifting from pickup to pickup look sergeant claire that isn't a normal bargain day crowd is it look at those groups of men three or four to a group shifting around waiting for something to happen this store's been infiltrated by a big goon gang that business in chinaware's just the start to draw our reserves down to the third floor look at that now he had a pickup on the twelfth floor the floor just under the public landing stages and at the foot of the escalators leading to the central executive block see how they're concentrating there he pointed out in that ladies wear department there are three men for every woman and the men are all drifting from counter to counter over in the direction of our escalators cocozello swore again feelingly literate you know your stuff he said that fuss in china is just a feint this is where they're really going to hit what do you think it is macy and gimbel's trying to bust up our sale or politics prestonby shrugged take your choice a competitor would concentrate where your biggest volume of sale was going on though political enemies would try to get up here and that's what this gang's trying to do he's absolutely right guido claire told the sergeant do whatever he tells you sergeant cocozello looked at him awaiting orders we can't commit our reserves in that chinaware department fight we need them up here where are they now and how many thirteen counting myself and the man in there he nodded toward the room where chester pelton lay in drugged sleep in the squad room on the floor below and for the mob below to get up here two escalators sir northeast and southwest corners of the office country and we got some new counters that mr latterman had built that didn't get put out in time for the sale we can use them to build barricades if we have to how about a copter attack on the roof cocozello grinned i'd like to see that now literate we got plenty of aa equipment up there four seven millimeter machine guns two twelve millimeters and one twenty millimeter auto cannon we could hold off the state guard with that that isn't saying much but they're not even that good so it'll be the escalators think now sergeant 
fires, burglary, hold-ups. The sergeant's grin widened. High-pressure fire hose, one at the head of each escalator, and a couple more that can be dragged over from other outlets. Say we put two men on each hose, lying down at the head of the escalators, and we got plenty of firearms. We can arm some of these clerks, up here. All right, do that, and put out an emergency call by interdepartment telephone, not by public address, to floor walkers from the fifth floor down, to gather up all male clerks and other store personnel in their departments, arm them with anything they can find, and rush them to Chinaware. Tell them to shout, Pelton! when they hit the mob, to avoid breaking each other's heads in the confusion. Tell them they're expected to hold the Chinaware and glassware departments themselves, without any help from the store police. Why not? Claire wanted to know. That's how battles come to happen at the wrong time and place, Prestonby told her. Two small detachments collide, and each sends back for reinforcements, and the next thing anybody knows, there's a full-size battle going on where nobody wants to fight one. We're going to fight our main battle at the head of the escalators from the twelfth floor. You've done this sort of work before, literate, Cocazello grinned. You talk like a stormtroop captain. <laughs> what else? Well, so far, we've just been talking defense. We need to take the offensive ourselves. He glanced around. Is there a freight elevator from this block to the basement? Yeah, wait till I see. Cocazello went to the TV screen and dialed. Yeah, and the elevator's up here, too, he said. Well, you take what men you can spare, a couple of your cops and a couple of the office crew, arm them with pistols, carbines, clubs, whatever you please, and take them down to the basement. Gather up all the warehouse gang down there and arm them. And as soon as you get to the basement, send the elevator back up here. That's our lifeline. We can't risk having it captured. You'll organize flying squads to go up into the store from the basement. Bust up any trouble that seems to be getting started if you can, but your main mission will be to rescue store police, literates, literates guards, and store help, and get them back to the basement. They'll be picked up from there and brought up here on the elevator. He picked up a pad from a desk and wrote a few lines on it. Show this to any literate you meet. Get literate Hopkinson to countersign it for you when you find him. Tell him we want his whole gang up here as soon as possible. How about getting help from outside? Claire asked. The city police, or... City police won't lift a finger, Prestonby told her. They never help anybody who has a private police force. They have too much to do protecting John Q. Citizen. Hunchnecker, suppose you call Radical Socialist Campaign Headquarters. Tell them to rush some of their lone rangers around here. Russell M. Latterman was lunching in the store restaurant, at a table next to the thick glass partition, where he could look out across confectionery and pastries toward the tobacco shop and the liquor department. There were two ways of looking at it, of course. He was occupying a table that might have been used by a customer, but, on the other hand, he was known by sight to many of the customers, and the fact that he was eating here had some advertising value, and he could keep his eye on the business going on around him. Off in the distance, he caught the white flash of a literate smock at one of the counters, one of the new crew sent in to replace the ones Bain had pulled out. He was glad, and at the same time, disturbed. He had had his doubts about staging a literate strike, and he was almost positive that Wilton Joyner had known nothing about it. The whole thing had been Harvey Graves' idea. There was a serious question of literate ethics involved, to say nothing of the effect on the public. 
the trick of forcing claire pelton to reveal her secret literacy was all right although he wished that it had been frank cardin who had opened that safe or did he cardin would have brazened it out claimed to have memorized the combination after having learned it by observation and would probably have gotten away with it but that silly girl had lost her head afterward and had gone on to brand herself irrevocably as illiterate one of the waitresses was hurrying toward him almost falling over herself in excitement she began talking when she was ten feet from the table mr latterman mr latterman she was calling to him a terrible fight down in chinaware well what do we have store police for he demanded they can take care of it now be quiet madge don't get the customers excited he returned to his lunch watching with satisfaction the crowd that was packing into the liquor department next to the restaurant that special loss leader old adam bomb rye had been a good idea in the first place the stuff was fit for nothing but cleaning drains and removing varnish if he were pelton he would have fired that fool buyer who got them overstocked on it but the audio advertiser outside was reiterating choice whiskies two hundred dollars a sixth and up and pulling in the customers who when they discovered that the two hundred dollar bargain was old adam bomb were shelling out five hundred to a grand a sixth for good liquor he finished his coffee and got to his feet be a good idea to look in on liquor and see how things were going the department was getting more and more crowded every minute three customers were entering for every one who left on the way he passed two women and caught a snatch of conversation don't go down on the third floor for heaven's sake terrible fight smashing everything up worried he continued into liquor and the looks of the crowd there increased his worries too many men between twenty and thirty all dressed alike looking alike talking and acting alike it looked like a goon gang infiltration and he was beginning to see why harvey graves had wanted the literates pulled out and why joyner bound by ethics to do nothing against the commercial interests of pelton's had known nothing about it he started toward a counter to speak to a clerk but one of the stocky quietly dressed young men stepped in front of him give me a bottle of atom bomb he said don't bother wrapping it yes sir the clerk seemed worried too he got the bottle and set it on the counter that'll be two c sir i see you're wearing a radical socialist button the customer commented because you want to or because chet pelton makes you mr pelton never interferes with his employees political convictions the clerk replied loyally saying nothing the customer took the bottle swung it by the neck and smashed it over the clerk's head knocking him senseless that's all that rot guts good for the customer said jumping over the counter all right boys help yourselves for a surprisingly long time the riot was localized in china where it had begun using alternately three tv pickups around the scene of the disturbance prestonby watched its progress and watched successive details of store personnel armed with clubs and a few knives and sono pistols hit the riot shouting their battle cry and vanish they were of course lambs of sacrifice however unlamblike their conduct they were buying time and they were drawing groups of goons into the action in china and glassware who might have been making trouble elsewhere there was an outbreak on the sixth floor in liquor claire touring the store on the other tv screen spotted it and called his attention to it back of the shattered glass partition a mob of men were snatching bottles from the shelves and tossing them out to the crowd one of the clerks in his gray uniform jacket was lying unconscious outside 
while Prestonby watched, another, and another, came flying out the doorway. A fourth victim, in ordinary business clothes, tattered and disheveled, came flying out after them, to land in a heap, stunned for an instant, and then pick himself up. Prestonby laughed heartily when he recognized literate, undercover, first-class Russell M. Latterman. "'I ought to have anticipated that,' he said. "'Any time there's a riot, the liquor stores are the first things looted. The liquor stores and the... Claire, see what's going on in sporting goods!' Sporting goods, between tools and hardware and toys, on the fifth floor, was swamped. One of the clerks was lying on the floor in a puddle of blood, past any help. None of the others were in sight. The gun racks and pistol cases were being cleaned out systematically. This had been organized in advance. There were four or five men working industriously, wiping grease out of bores and actions before handing out firearms, and a couple more making sure that the right cartridges went with each weapon. Somebody had brought a small grinding wheel over from tools and plugged it in, and was grinding points on the foils and epées. Others were collecting baseball bats, golf clubs, and football helmets and catcher's masks. The tool department was being stripped of everything that could be used as a weapon, too. The whole store, by this time, was an approximation of mutiny in a madhouse. Dress goods was being looted by a howling mob of women who were pulling bolts of material from shelves and fighting among themselves over them. Somebody had turned on the electric fans, and long streams of flimsy fabric were blowing about like a surrealist maypole dance. Somebody in household furnishings had turned on a couple of fans, too, and a mob of hoodlums were opening cans of paint and throwing them into the fan blades. The little antiques department, in a corner of the fourth floor back of the gift shop, was an island of peace in the general chaos. There was only one way into it, and one of the clerks, who had gotten himself into a suit of fifteenth-century battle armor, was standing in the entrance, leaning on a two-hand sword. There was blood on the long blade, and more blood splashed on the floor in front of him. He was being left entirely alone. End of Section 4